So we are coming to a close on our gratitude journey. We only have a couple more weeks left, but Bear Dawson knows what Miss Dogwood Dawson is grateful for. So Bear, what was Dog grateful for today? Today she was grateful for that she got a bone to eat because she ate it in literally 10 minutes. (laughs) And after that, she had a happy stomach with acid in it, burning it. (laughs) Okay, that's enough. So that's what we're grateful for. And there is boy mom life in a nutshell. Oh, so we have had many conversations about digestive enzymes and stomach acid. Yep. So we are grateful for dog's joy, getting a new bone and stomach acid. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Y'all are in for the treat. The guest today uh, is getting her PhD soon. Not quite, but she's working on it. So the 2B Dr. Lillian Thompson-Brown is brilliant and passionate and kind and truly changing kids stars. And so I hope that you enjoyed this episode and I hope that your fuzzy friend also has a a delicious bone and good digestive enzymes (laughs) and happy gratitude journey y'all. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hey, this is Michelle Dawson, and I need to update my disclosure statements. So my non-financial disclosures. I actively volunteer with Feeding Matters, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, NFOSD, Dysphagia Outreach Project, DOP. 
I am a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents, CSAP, a past president of the South Carolina Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, SCISHA, a current board of trustees member with the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia, and I am a current member of ASHA, ASHA SIG 13, SCISHA, the Speech, Language, Hearing Association of Virginia, SHAB, a member of the National Black Speech Language Hearing Association in Basla and Dysphasia Research Society, DRS. Additionally, I volunteer with ASHA as the topic chair for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2023 convention in Boston, and I hope you make it out there. My financial disclosures include receiving compensation for First Bite Podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com as well as from additional webinars and for webinars associated with Understanding Dysphagia, which is also a podcast with SpeechTherapyPD.com. And I currently receive a salary from the University of South Carolina in my work as adjunct professor and student services coordinator, and I receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, as well as compensation for the CEUs associated with it from speechtherapypd.com. So those are my current disclosure statements. Thanks, guys. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely. All right, everybody. So we have an utterly beautiful guest today. Y'all, she is as kind and compassionate and beautiful on the inside as she is on the outside. And I am in awe that when I got to meet her and two, that she said yes, and she's coming on. So I have the one and only Lillian Thompson Brown, who we're claiming this in the universe in the next three years will be Dr. Lillian Thompson Brown. And I met her. Yes, right. You're like, yeah. And I met her at Mbosla this past April in Washington, D.C., And she was doing a presentation on autism evaluations, specifically for early intervention. And y'all all all know EI is like my one true love. Like I love working with tiny humans. I love caregiver coaching. This is why we started this entire podcast from the get-go was to expedite research to practice, but specifically for the littlest ones, the least of these. And so after I got done hearing her talk and when she gets excited, I'm not sure if you realize this, but when you got excited, when you were talking, you kind of hopped a little and it was just like really <laughs> awesome to watch. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, she's so excited about her research. She like hopped. And I was like, oh, I need her. I need to meet this human. <laughs> so I waited for like the crowd to leave because there was like a crowd waiting to talk to her and because um, she was awesome. And then kind of like fangirled for a moment. I was like, you don't know me. Please come on my podcast. Like, hi. So <laughs> y'all have no idea how many people I have solicited and they all look at me like I'm crazy. And I am, but like, I mean, huzzah. But she said, yes, and we're here today. So Lillian, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I did a little hop when you just introduced me, so you're absolutely <laughs> correct. <laughs> and I am so excited to be here. I am so excited uh, to be a part of this this movement that you have going on. <laughs> 
It kind of has become one, hasn't it? That's very cool. All God, I, glory there. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. I told her before, I was like, I love Jesus, but I cuss like a sailor. And the, bless the editors. They've already had to edit out one F-bomb before we even hit like actually the real introduction. So there's life. But yes. Okay. So I met you when you were presenting on some research that you're conducting for your PhD at an incredible... Your- your bio reads like the who's who of academia already. Like the schools that you've gone to are so impressive. So, but take us from the beginning. Like, how did you learn about the world of speech pathology and then go down this journey to getting a PhD and your research? But okay, I get ahead of myself. Take me from the beginning. <laughs> okay, thank you. I'm so excited that you're excited because I'm excited too. So. <laughs> At the core of it, I am the little sister to an autistic big brother, my brother Ramon, and he is non-speaking, but has managed to make it on this podcast and reach so many people. He has been the major inspiration to my life, and I just am very grateful for that. So when I, he's not, like I said, he's non-speaking, but I talk a lot, <laughs> which you will find <laughs> as we go along on this podcast. And so uh, I knew when I was 16, I'm like, I really want to be a speech pathologist. I need to, I want to help my, my brother communicates non-verbally. And so, but a lot of people don't take the time to understand what he's saying. And I find that unfortunate, but I see such value in the way that he communicates. And so that led me to be a speech pathologist. I went to the University of Central Florida and I then started working at the Center for Autism there. And it was at UCF that I met um, for the first time, a person that also had a sibling that was autistic. And I was like, you know, I don't really like that. I don't think that people should wait until college to meet somebody that's from a family that has a similar dynamic as them. So um, with the help of the director there, I helped to start an organization called the Sisters Club. And so I started for, for little girls, K to fifth grade that had an autistic sibling. And that was just so beautiful. And so then when I got my master's at Howard University, shout out to Howard University, HU, you know. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I heard that graduated. so many times that in Basla, by the way. <laughs> that oh, was awesome. <laughs> that's right. I am a Howard made SLP for sure. <laughs> so but my work there with Dr. Kate Payne, who is a, a lead in sociolinguistics, he's now retired, but really understanding Black American communication styles and, you know, how and the biases in these assessments. I was like, huh, that's interesting. I, I really hadn't even, you know, considered it because these assessments are sold to us as a standard. And from there, after I graduated, I went to, uh, I decided to volunteer at Kennedy Krieger and start another sibling support group there um, in Baltimore. And so I had that going. And then, you know, I was an SLP for 14 years, 14 years working with all various from the schools and uh, to the hospitals and clinics and all different things. But while I was doing that, I was always connected to the autism advocacy community. And I ended up becoming in Illinois. When I moved to Illinois, I ended up becoming the uh, chair of the Autism Speaks Young Professionals organization. And I was so blessed by the self-advocates that we had on our board uh, and the diverse the diversity of self-advocates, Black, Hispanic, Indian, you know, we had some of everybody, along with also, you know, allies and, and siblings and just and professionals. And so to see the work that we could do in the community and to see the representation, I would go out 
and talk to the NAACP and would talk to uh, alumni chapters of historically Black sororities and fraternities and just kind of talk to them about autism, the Black churches. And they would say, okay, well, what, what about us? What's the information on our community? And, and, you know, I would ask the leaders in the field, you know, the lead scientists, you know, what about the Black community? And there was just a lot of, well, we should and we could and we wish, but not a lot of actual answers. And so I found that very unfortunate and a disservice to autism, the field as, as well. And so I decided to go back to school to be the change that I wanted to see. And so I quit my job and I ended up at Northwestern University in the early intervention research group uh, under the divine uh, leadership of Dr. Megan Roberts, who is an absolute genius. And so it has been truly, truly a blessing for me to be able to have my research focus on Black, how to support Black caregivers of autistic children and hopefully really strengthen strengthen families. Yes. Do you know Dr. Frances Burns, the chair of FMU? I don't. I'm making notes already. We haven't even gotten 10 minutes Ooh. in and I'm making notes. <laughs> Intro to Dr. Dr. Burns was and is my mentor, but I worked for her for about a year and a half as the coordinator of their clinic there. I had to walk away because my oldest needed intense speech therapy to help with spelling. And I was driving like an hour and 20 minutes one way just to go to work. And mom, life will always take precedence over my career. And um, which if you're hearing that, let me say it again, it's okay to be a caregiver first and then a career person, just so you know. But her focus is on caregiver coaching and early intervention. I love it. I love it. I mean, because like you said, like we're caregivers. I'm, you know, eventually, you know, I know that I will be the lead caregiver for my brother. And so I'm going to pay very attention and just seeing what, you know, my mom went through. It's just in other parents and other caregivers. It's, it's just really important to provide family support. Yes. Okay. So I have to put, I mean, like, obviously, but I have to put this on the table. When I go in and I'm working with families, I realize that I bring with me my whiteness and I know my lived experiences. I mean, I am the first one to turn magenta when the sun is high because the Irish has outweighed <laughs> the Padawamic and Cherokee that is my lineage. But like, bless, I've got one kid that turns beautiful olive in the other one. I mean, we have to like lather goose and suntan lotion, but I mean, genetics, it's very interesting. But I don't know the experiences of the families that I am working with. And I was not prepared when I moved from Virginia to South Carolina, because I grew up in Virginia, moved to South Carolina and worked there for 12 years. And I started going into homes and I'd never done home health before. And I was not prepared for the interactions And I had to reassess my therapeutic presence because families were, some families were truly afraid to disclose information to me for fear that I would call ICE. So we can go there because Columbia, South Carolina, the outskirts has a large immigrant population and a large, uh, they work the fields and then go, they follow the crops, they follow the seasons, right? So this happens, which you don't realize that that's still occurring until you live in the South. But there was so much that I didn't know that I had to learn so much. I still don't know, but 
I'm unsure where to begin. And then with respect to what is an SLP's role in giving an autism evaluation, much less a diagnosis, because that I feel like changes state to state. So I don't really know where you want to begin with all that, but those are some of the thoughts that were running through my head. And that doesn't even include the incredibly thorough outline questions that you have provided in <laughs> advance. But hi, <laughs> where do you want to go, love? <laughs> no, yeah. Like, let's start off with just like the re- reflection and that the fact that, you know, you're recognizing like, hey, I have a certain perspective. I really think that that needs to be really talked about a lot more in our field. There is bias. Everyone has bias. As a Black woman, I have bias based on my lived experiences. I don't know all that there is to about every culture, and I won't. I, I don't even know all that there is about my own culture. And so recognizing before we're going into something, okay, I know that I have this bias. How am I going to ask these questions? Let's start with asking these open-ended questions, not making assumptions based upon these so quote unquote standards that are really based off of white, the a white, you know, Western white culture. Uh, let's try to, you know, see how, ask the family, just, you know, how do you guys interact? Especially in early intervention, when we're getting to know, how do you interact with your child? Just opening that up and then also being transparent and saying like, hey, you know, I don't know everything. And so I really want to, I want you to be, this to be parent caregiver driven, you know, at Northwestern, especially in our, our lab, at our early intervention lab, we are very focused on making sure that parents know that we know that they're the experts. We're just here to give our, you know, help to shape their expertise. Yes. And so uh, that asking those open-ended questions, I think are the, the main, the main thing. And like I said, in addition to recognizing when you think about, uh, and also not leaning so heavily when we have these standardized tests, We'll say, you know, they say, okay, well, ask the child, ask the caregiver to call their name. Okay, well, you know, you see their name as Robert Anthony the third. You say, okay, well, can you say, ask, you know, call, see, you know, Robert? Turns out they might call him Trey. Like, you you didn't even know. Like, so, yeah, you're not responding to Robert because the child is two, and they really never called him Robert. There's three other Roberts in the house. The grandfather's in the back. He's Robert. The dad is Bobby. The third one is Trey. He's Trey. Yeah, no, we have all these assumptions. We, my son's name is Theodore. He goes by Bear. They gave him the PLS five, and they said the bear is hungry. You need to feed the bear. So he looked at them and picked up the food, and he was—I swear to God—he was two and a half. And he looked at me and was like, "What the hell are these people doing?" I mean, he didn't say it, but he has my face. And so there he is, like pretending to feed himself the food, and I'm like, and the student was so confused, and she kept saying, "Feed the bear," and he was like. <laughs> I am the bear. <laughs> I know. I was like, you clearly did not read the bio where I said his <laughs> name. I mean, <laughs> there you go. So there are those assumptions. And when you're talking about going into spaces and, you know, people feeling uncomfortable, we think about the systems of oppression that have led to these pe- to people and families feeling uncomfortable. And so we have to acknowledge that and do some research, too. Um, and like I said, talk, ask parents and caregivers how they want to be referred. If you're a 24-year-old white girl calling this 64-year-old black woman, Sandra, by her first name, that might not go over no. well. You might need to put a handle on that. You know, you got to put a miss, Mrs. So, you know, doctor, whatever it is, 
give them that respect. And that's culturally bound. And so you're really, really doing that research, but also being open and telling them, being very transparent. I don't know everything. I'm, I'm hoping to learn more about your family and we're going to work on this together. Yes. Grandma would have gotten a hold of her shoe and popped me if I did that to See? an adult. <laughs> but like exactly. that, and grandma had a specific set of wooden shoes from the 70s back when like clogs were stylish. And I'm t- oh she also she I have her fly spot. I distinctly remember catching the she could catch you as you ran through the kitchen on the back of your thighs like it was nobody's business. That woman was quick. <laughs> Plus, I know she's up there just laughing and laughing. Okay. But yes. So do you guys have y'all, do y'all use the Juliana Woods family guided routines based interview? So we're actually, so that's kind of leads to like that second part of what of the SLP's role is. So actually Dr. Megan Roberts and Dr. Aaron Cott have launched this wonderfully huge study called Reduce the Weight. And so we are trying to show that speech pathologists and developmental therapists, we know that we're on the ground working with these families all of the time. We are doing the work. We are on the front line. And so we believe that we can help to reduce some of these wait lists by, by these autism wait lists by having the clinicians do the assessment. And so we're in that study, we're using, well, the teleautism peds, which is because it's a virtual assessment. So we're using the teleautism peds and we are also using the TASI, which is the toddler autism symptom interview for that program. And so one part is caregiver um, and child observation. And then the other part is the actual like interview, the caregiver interview with the clinician. But we can do gets to that. But that's my thing is why, why do I have to wait two years on a referral to come through to a developmental pediatrician when I can administer exactly. the test. Why? Why is this a thing? Oh, you folks. But that that's exactly what we're trying to do at Northwestern. That is exactly what we're trying to do in our lab. And so we have like 1,000 children that will be in this study in Illinois. And we are trying to show like, there's no need to wait for these developmental pediatricians. We love our developmental pediatricians and our clinical psychologists, but there are only a few of them. And so even post-COVID, it's even longer. So now you've got children that have been on wait lists that are on wait lists for two years. And we know it's two, three, exactly three years. And we know that the first three years, we know all that neuroplasticity is there and it is waiting for us to help to give that intervention. But we can't if the child is on a wait list for two years, for two plus years. Yes. And then by the time they get a, a diagnosis, then they have to go on another wait list to get resources. And it's just like, this is a problem. And so the sooner that we can get these children diagnosed, the better. And then by doing a virtual assessment, we are opening up to these rural areas, families that are that are in South, you know, we're in Illinois and this project is, is centered in Illinois. And so families that are in these rural towns that are not Chicago can have access or families even in Chicago on the South side or the West side or places where, you know, they have to take transportation. Getting to from Northwestern's campus from the South side of Chicago could take upwards to an hour if you're using public transportation, even if you're not. And so, you know, by having this virtually, you're giving access. Yes. And I'm thinking that's an hour through a lens of a typically developing individual. 
But if you're working with a child that has a disability or an autistic child, the sounds, the sights, the smells, the accessibility of that is another barrier that these families are going to struggle to get to. And if you're incredibly in the country, I mean, Columbia may have been the state capital, but you went 20 miles out and it was, I worked on country roads in double wides that may or may not have had floors and furniture. And transportation was not readily available to go. I mean, yeah, exactly. And so then the the child gets there and okay, well, how are they going to behave? They're probably hungry. There's so many things going on there. And, you know, but the parent is trying to get there and they might've taken off of work. They might not, their boss may not understand, you know, depending on what they're doing. So you don't know the efforts. And so by having virtual assessment, now we've opened it up so that we can have more access to people and people can get off of these wait lists. And that's why we we entitled it Reduce the Weight. And so it's really just an awesome, awesome study that we're we're hoping more people participate in. So is there a way that people can, individuals, if they're listening, say they're an SLP working in Illinois right now, how do they reach out to you to get the students, the patients, the clients they're seeing to you? Absolutely. So on our website, ei.northwestern.edu, they can see all of the projects that we have going on. But specifically for those that are interested in being a part of Reduce the Weight, if you're already authorized as a an SLP in the EI system, you can also go to our, you can text the word change at 847-750-3440. That's text the word change. We will send you all the information that you need. And all that information is also on our website as well. So we would just love, love, love for you to be a part of that. And especially if you are from a community, from a historically marginalized community, from a black and brown community, if you speak another language, if you have anything like that, uh, we really would love for you to be a part of this study because we want to make sure that we have uh, diverse clinicians working on this as well. Yes. Representation. Yes. Okay. So then my question is, as a part of this study, and I am not pursuing a PhD currently. I feel like everybody in my world is like starting in on like the PhD. And I'm like, um, we did sign up for archery lessons. Okay. We're like nerdy, nerdy. Like Lily, when I mean like nerdy, nerdy, we found a person in downtown Stanton who, Stanton, Virginia, who my twain came out, who has a dragon shop. And so my husband and my youngest are learning sword fighting and the oldest and I are learning like old school archery, but I mean, like I, we're one step up from Dungeons and Dragons. And if you're a Dungeons and Dragons fan, I'm slightly teasing only, not really, <laughs> but like, that's where Listen, my funny money have gone. <laughs> the way the world is going, you never know when the real life hunger games are really going to happen. I mean, Chicago is like in a cloud of smoke right now. So <laughs> you may need those skills sooner than later. Yes. I'm so happy I started pelvic floor PT again. I laughed so hard. I would have peed a couple weeks ago, but as I did not. Also, I'm really, I'm so proud of myself when I laugh hard or I sneeze and I don't pee that I shout. I'm like, didn't pee. And my husband and both the children start clapping. And I'm like, (laughs) 
life goals. Life goals it. right there. I love okay. it. But back, take it back, Michelle. But when we go back to the research piece, because I'm not a PhD student, I don't really understand how all of the research occurs. But the participants of the study, will you train these clinicians in how to do these evaluations? And then they can go forth and multiply? Because I feel like that's what's happening. Exactly. Yes. So we will train the clinicians. They can receive upwards to 30, uh, around 30 CEUs for this training. And, and they free? will be compensated in a competitive rate. Yes. And it's, they will be compensated at the competitive rate for an EI clinician. And so this is, there are just so many great incentives to be a part of this, this project. This is, yeah. how and then, am I? In addition to that, in addition to that, we have an expert team that consists of a psychologist, a speech pathologist, and a developmental therapist that were, are really experts in doing this and doing assessment and diagnoses. And they, will look at every single case. And because that expert team is there and because on that expert team, there is that psychologist, all of the diagnoses will be, it should be acknowledged by insurance. And so that is what's really cool about it. It's not just like, oh, we're just saying it. It's also, you can, the parents and caregivers can use this diagnosis and really get off the wait list and take this to their local providers if they want. And if they don't want, they can stay on the wait list as well. But it's just, again, offering this, this opportunity to more people to get them resources and services. Yes. Okay. So this is a, my follow-up question I'm going to preface is actually really personal. With the I honestly thought you were like 26. So when you tell me that you've practiced for like 14 years, I'm like, what did you do? Go to school when you're like a high schooler? I graduated graduated very young. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So for those of us that are a fair bit older and have gray hair and Botox, thank you very much. I went to school with and was taught because because of that moment in time, right? So let's set the stage. I was taught autism is a disorder or disease that has to be corrected. And now we know it is not a disorder or a disease. It's a difference. And what a beautiful difference it is, right? But, But having to turn that tide within our profession, having to turn that tide within those of us that are my age and older and learning a new skill set, which we can, right? Like we can learn new things. We can do the hard things. Thank you, Glennon Doyle. But how does that neurodiversity affirming movement play into getting the diagnosis? Is that conversation being had there? Like where are we, where are we in that world? Yes, and definitely, and we definitely, even in our training, we focus on using strength-based language because for so long, it's been this deficit medical view of this. And I really just think in general, the acknowledgement that difference is okay. (laughs) It is okay to be different. We are all different. So how can we as clinicians get these these children the support for themselves? Not based on how I may develop, but on how they may develop. And that is in a neurodivergent way, as well as a culturally responsive way, all of those things, because there are people there's, and you know, thinking about the gender bias in autism research, the racist histories of autism research, thinking about all those things and realizing that all of these things that make us different are good. And so we need to see how we can use these, these differences to support our ch- these children and families. 
I think that that is the key is really using the differences and and letting them, the the caregivers and the the children lead, seeing, not trying to make them um, behave in a certain way or have a certain amount of eye contact for a certain amount of time. This is listening to the self-advocates that are on the front lines, um, telling about their experiences and how and being in constant communication with families to see what is appropriate case that is case specific. Yes. Okay. So then I have a question on how is within y'all are pulling so many different individuals from so many backgrounds. Do you see different cultural responses to an autism diagnosis? Like, is there different approaches because I've experienced different experiences, but I didn't know what y'all had picked up on or were were you documenting trends or doing any data in that? Yeah. You know, we just launched this project. So we, this project is new. So we're we're really kind of just seeing what develops, but we know Mm -hmm. that there are differences in just general autism. Unfortunately, no, there's not a lot of research and cultural variation in autism research, but we know that there are differences in stigma, especially mm-hmm. in, in community education. Who gets these resources and these community, the community education? And so those, those, that, those things, those components shape um, how a reaction might be. And so, again, that's why it's so important to really use that strength-based language and to let people know that this is, you know, this is just a, it's a difference. And this is not the end-all be-all. This is just telling us how we can help your child and what we need, what strategies we may need to use to try to help your child lead their best life. And so with my study, I'm currently looking at the Black caregiver perspectives and seeing what Black caregivers, how Black caregivers are describing their child and, you know, what they're saying during this, you know, are they not only how they're describing, but the reason that they're attributing to some of the behaviors that their children that may be diagnosed as autistic have. So for instance, they may say, oh, you know, my child really, he learns so much or she learns so much from the TV. Oh, really? They learn so much. And then they find out, you know, yes, every they've memorized all the, the, the commercials. They've memorized all the cartoons. That's what, you know, even with my own brother, that's what my mother has said, you know, like, oh yeah, he started talking. He was memorizing all of the, uh, saying all of the Coca-Cola commercials. It's like, no, 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 no. Okay. language. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, all right, well, great. So, you know, and so just saying that, hey, well, that might be a characteristic of autism, <laughs> um, how they're communicating. And so, you know, that and just having that, that knowledge of, you know, that cultural variations that there may be. I mean, that's why it's so important. And that's why it's really unfortunate that in the history, I think they did, there was a study that was done and they looked over 27 years of autism research up until like 2017. And they showed that only 25% of those studies actually reported anything about race or culture. And that like blows my mind, especially with autism. When we think, especially as SLPs, again, talking about the roles of SLPs in the diagnostic process, when we think of social and communication, how is social and both com- and communication not impacted by culture? There, are, It's impossible. You can't say that your social interactions were, aren't shaped by your culture. You can't say that your communication is, is shaped by your culture. So the fact that we're, you know, it's kind of like, the, oh, yes, and we know that there's some differences. Okay, but what are the differences? Okay, can we do the research? We cannot have evidence-based practice without evidence. Uh-huh. Yes! <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm pretty sure if you go on the land of the Instagram or the tick of the talks, you'll find a reel and somebody's going to know an answer to something and summarize it in 30 seconds. And now they're subject matter experts, but not, oh, yeah. no, oh, I'm yeah. sarcastic. No, but no, like, no dig on TikToks. I, I love TikTok. Shout out. I have my the speech sciences on TikTok. I, this is why I'm trying to like on, be on there to hopefully negate some of what no. is going on and bring some. Okay. I have an idea then. Let me formally introduce you because I got to be honest, y'all. I don't know if you've been to the land of the Instagram to see what First Bite has done lately, but Aaron and I, I got my IRA up. And if y'all aren't from the Blue Ridge, you may not have heard the word IRA, but IRA is a hot mad. It is like seething, boiling, festering, like, oof, oof. So anywho, I got my hour up because I am so frustrated with social media and from the lens of a mom, when I see things that are being published that in my deepest, darkest, scariest hour, when I am worried about my children because Bear couldn't hear for so long and he had to have a lot of therapy and Goose had a concussion in kindergarten, the end of kindergarten because of some bullying. It, they didn't mean nothing by it. They were, they, he got put in a headlock and fell back on, hit his pocket, um, posterior occipital, oh but he had like visual spatial integration issues. So like spelling was hard because word, words, whatever. When I got on social media through that lens of a mom. I couldn't not turn that off where I'm trying to seek answers. Right. But like, I'm trying to look for like scholarly answers, but when I'm on there now and I see people summarizing research or miss representing research because they're trying their hardest, but bless them. They're focusing on their hitting the beat to the words that are hopping up on stage without understanding the meaning of the message and the meaning of the research that's being transitioned. Anyways, we got sick and tired of it. So we're doing something different. So let me formally invite you for Research Wednesdays. So we are hosting two Research Wednesdays a month on First Bite on Instagram, where we invite the researcher to come on and share their research and their goals. That way, the message does not get muddied in the water. So that would be so amazing. I mean, I absolutely accept. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that would be great. I mean, because and that, that's why I started my TikTok. And all, like, there's so much gatekeeping, and especially as a PhD student. This is why I came. I really, and I really applaud Dr. Megan Roberts for the work that she does. She is a clinician scientist, heavy on the yeah. clinician. We are committed to having research that is practical and can, people can actually use. But we have to get it out to the masses. And it's so yeah. much easier to look at a TikTok or a reel than it is to, I mean, first of all, half these research journals are protected and you have to pay $49.95 in order to I, read one article. Like, who is going to do I that? No, I'm going to go on TikTok that is absolutely free and swipe and do a hashtag search and see what I can get or go on Twitter and see what I can find. And it's like, whose job? It's our job as clinicians, as researchers, to really get this out to the masses. We want this out you know, as a Northwestern, we want this out to the clinicians. As, as clinicians, we want this out to our, our community, to our caregivers, our teachers, doctors, whoever working with this, with our families, so that we can really get it out. It means nothing if I write this very hoity-toity research, very um, academically re- rigorous research that is statistically sound, and nobody sees it. Nobody yes. sees it but each other, other researchers. Okay, how does that help? It does not help. We need to move this 
forward. We want to push the needle forward. And so um, thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for this podcast and all the work. We we try. We're we're doing our part. My topics are so varied. It's like very representative of how my brain ping pongs between 400 different things at once. Cause I'm like, Ooh, that, that's great. This is fun. Okay. But now I have a question back to the actual billing piece, because I know somebody has just processed everything that we've said and thought, but can I actually bill for when I do this assessment? And if I don't have a psychologist on the team, how do I get that validated? Or do I need a psychologist in order to get the diagnosis? Those are multiple questions that just I word vomited. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. And it definitely depends on where you're located for sure. We know that it is in the ASHA scope of practice that we can do these assessments, but that's why with our study, we know that it will be verified because we covered all bases because we will have a clinical psychologist. So even though the developmental therapist and the speech pathologist um, are doing the main assessments, the clinical psychologist and the expert team of the developmental therapist and speech pathologist there are looking over each case. And because they're looking over each case, there will be a group of people looking over each individual case. And that psychologist allows it to be billed as it typically would. And so that I think is what helps. Yeah. So folks, if you're listening, let's just put a couple things out into the universe. Each state interprets IDEA Part C, the special education law, differently, okay? So if we were to step back and look at it, if we look at the South Carolina model, which I will be the first to throw out there, is utterly broken. They have non-licensed, non-certified individuals acting as the early interventionist, or at least they do as of it's June, and... These individuals are tasked with administering the five domain test, which when you read the inside description of those five domain tests, they don't meet the bare minimum standard requirements to administer, score, or interpret these tests. Let that just wash over you and get your IRA up and then pull up your big gold britches, call Kelly Caldwell and volunteer your time and talents to make that right. Okay, Kelly, you're welcome. Okay. In different states, those five domain tests are administered, say you're in Virginia, those five domain tests and those five domains, gross motor, fine motor, cognition, self-help skills, and language are administered by a licensed professional, such as a licensed certified speech pathologist, physical therapist, occupational therapist, teacher of the deaf, teacher of the visually impaired, or a special education teacher, maybe specifically geared for EI, but they could be education major psychologist, something of that nature. Okay. Then you go to other areas. I believe it's in Kentucky where they have a one individual administering the assessments and then different individuals snapshot in and out to do the actual interventions. It's not like a dynamic team. I say all this because we have no consistency across the union and how children even get into early intervention while that runs parallel to these ASD evaluations, okay? So big picture, as clinicians, we should also be advocating for uniformity and practice such that if one child moves, because families move, they're going to have a consistency and best quality of services that are rendered. 
because I don't know about you, but I don't feel too good when a PT is assigned to a case and the child's got a significant language delay and the PT Absolutely. is the sole. Yeah. Like if the PT is the sole responsible individual. Now, if the PT is there working on gross motor stuff, you do you, that's amazing. But that's another thing that I say all this because these are big pictures that influence the interactions of our caregivers, right? Like their experiences, even getting to us, what are they bringing? What traumas have they gone through? Okay. So with that being said, when you have the caregiver with you, what are we doing to coach them? What strategies, what's being said? Like, how can we be culturally responsive? right? Like help me, help me be, as my youngest sister would say, help me be more gooder. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, first I want to acknowledge, you know, what you said about the uniformity first. And I really think we're, we are hoping, you know, the study is in Illinois for Illinois children and families, but we are hoping that the results will have a ripple effect across America and what we can do, especially for our field um, and what what we see. So thank you for that. In terms of strategies, there are so many, there are quite a few strategies. Um, We use the eclectic framework by Fuji and Boards Edgar. And it just kind of breaks down different strategies. It's just, it's a strategy and it's an acronym for the types of things that we can look for during to provide culturally responsive strategies. So for instance, one of the things that we really can think of is the L in eclectic is for language and language proficiency. And so we think about the language that we use. We know as SLPs, we're talking to caregivers. We say AAC. Okay, well, we say AAC. Well, what is AAC? Even we're talking in acronyms. We don't even write down AAC. Um, that's still not very clear. What is alternative, augmentative? What does that mean? Using language that is the plainest way possible to explain something is going to be helpful. And also doing that, what I was talking about before, asking those open-ended questions ahead of time and saying, you know, what language are you most comfortable with? I know even if they may speak some English, they may be more comfortable in another language. And so getting those interpreters in, like, let's get some interpreters in here so that we can really help to support these families and so that they can feel a little bit more comfortable. And then, you know, one of the E's is thinking about the economic standpoint in that we come in with our big super duper bags of toys and we plop them down. And then the families, then as soon as our session's up, we collect all of the toys and then we go. And then the family might not have any toys in the home. And so, you know, is that really culturally responsive? Are we really, how is this helpful? How is this helpful to the child? Can I? Roar! Roar! Okay, so I went through (laughs) at FMU and pulled out every single deck of flashcards when I was there. And they all thought I was crazy. Bless. Bless Dr. Burns for supporting me in this. I pulled out all of these things and was like, no, you have to meet them where they are. We are more than flashcard clinicians. I mean, I'm all about good like game of cards, but no. Also, everything you just said, I want to shout from the mountaintops. If you are in early intervention, leave your bag of tricks at home. You. Thank you. It is your brain, it is your soul, and your therapeutic presence that you go into that home with and you build those caregivers up. Here is my favorite math. How many hours are in a day? 
24. How many days in a week? Seven. When you do the math, it ends up being, I think, 168 hours if my math isn't too rusty. And then we get one hour with them. Am I right? Is it 100? I think it's 168. And then if we get one hour a week with them, you're a clinician and not a magician. The 167 hours, the caregivers are with them, whether that be their teachers, their aides, their parents, their grandparents, their foster parents, right? They it is how you build up that caregiver in that one hour that impacts the rest. And you can't do it with a bag of toys. Now, if you truly go in the home and they have nothing, then the onus is on us as the clinician to work with that child's team to put resources in the home. But that is also within the framework of IDEA Part C and predicated on Absolutely. Maslow's scale of higher up on you. Thank you. So no toys, Absolutely. no toys in the home. Boo. And that's yes. why we do the individualized family service plan. This is and yes. the other thing about being culturally responsive is what are the priorities of this? Yes. Not your priorities. What are the priorities? Even if you don't agree with some of the things, what are their priorities? And in one of my in my study, I was talking about so many of the families were mentioning in my sorry, my study is a qualitative study, and so I look forward to talking about it in the research day. But it, and so I, it's more descriptive. And so the families were saying, I really just want my child to talk, I want my child to talk. And we can say, Oh, no, there's and I know as an SLP, there's so many great ways to non verbally communicate. I talked about how I love how my brother communicates non verbally, there are ways to communicate, however. If this is what this family's priority is, being respectful of, okay, this is what the family, you don't know, especially in terms of differences in culture. If a little black child is not able to communicate and they get, and they grow up and they become an older black child, a teenager walking down the street and the police pulls them over, are they going to wait to see if the child is autistic? No, they may not. You know, and so the parents may have a deeper priority than what you might be thinking. You know, it may be, it may go deeper. There are some things where they may need to say, hey, hey, please don't shoot or don't do anything, please. Like, let me just, you know, explain myself. But if they can't say that, you know, and so it is important for these, the children to be able to communicate for, for them. And so just, like I said, listening, having that understanding cultural priorities on an individualized basis and not going in there with those assumptions um, that the parents just ableist and they just don't want, they don't understand. No, there may be some other things. And how can we help to work with these families to, to help this situation? Okay. Wait, is there an organization in Chicago where caregivers can call in when they have a diagnosis and like have that listed in affiliation with their address? Um, Yes, there are several organizations in Chicago. I know the the Autism Program of Illinois is the one that was one that we we recommend that can kind of connect you with different resources. But there are quite a few. Um, obviously, not enough. <laughs> there, um, and yeah. depending on what areas that they're in, I'm not sure of the wait list. But each of when in our reduce the wait study, each of the families that uh, gets a diagnosis, even those that, that don't, they get a, a packet of some resources that they can reach out to. So the one off the top of my head that I can think of is the TAP program. And then, and, you know, also connecting with us at Northwestern, seeing what we have going on too. We love, we love to help. We have a, a new smart study that is also starting as well, that is dealing with social communication and how caregivers can learn social communication strategies and behavioral regulation strategies as well. So yeah, those are a couple of the programs that you know, I would probably recommend. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'm just... One of my very dear friends who's actually an early interventionist, and I love her. She was Bear's early interventionist, and she advocated for him to get in with the systems because I couldn't be 
I mean, I'm a Peds E-I-S-L-P, right? But I couldn't be Bear's Peds E-I-S-L-P. But her father was diagnosed with primary progressive aphasia and Mm -hmm. is non-speaking. And But he wanders, right? So they set up a new program, and it's new in Orangeburg, South Carolina. And it's where caregivers can call in. It's called the Bonnet Bonnet Safety something or another. Bloody hell, I forgot. But it'll come to me probably at 2 o'clock in the morning when all good thoughts do. But it is a organization where families can call in and provide information on their loved one that has a disability or has a difference that would make them susceptible to not being able to answer their name being called by police or just being prone to wandering. And I think that this is why it's 2023 and we don't have a national network for this is kind of like what's going on. But if it takes individual districts to start the steps before we have a cohesive state program, then let's add this to the list of things for 2024 because 2023 is a little busy. So we'll just work on that in 2024. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. So that's excellent. That's so beautiful. Right? Like take a hurt, make it better. Like big time. Okay. What other, tell me, what do you mean qualitative research? Tell me about your qualitative research. What's also, wait, guys, I learned something. Qualitative is like the questioning and quantitative is looking at numbers, right? Did I remember this from another lecture? Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, that's basically, yeah, it's like, yeah, qualitative. Yeah, so the quantitative is like, again, those numbers, this, this, that, which we see a lot, you know, they report those prevalence rates and they say, oh, you know, autism, especially now the recent prevalence is that autism is increased in Black, Hispanic, and Asian children and more has exceeded the, the white children being diagnosed. That is the quantitative part. But then you can add, then you look a little closer and you're like, okay, but it's at the age eight. Okay, what is that? That means that, all right, they're not showing anything about early intervention. Okay, why? Because Blacks and Hispanics are more likely to be misdiagnosed and have late diagnoses. And so understanding, and then from there, okay, why have the prevalence rates increased? So then you would come in with a qualitative question, like, why are these, ha- like, what is going on here? Like, to try to understand and get a descriptive of what's, what's really going on to not just have the numbers there. Understanding these perspectives, understanding what's happening and seeing that like, oh yeah, not only, well, the, there's an increase in prevalence, but also Black children are more likely to be diagnosed as having an intellectual d- disability. Okay, let's ask the parents or the caregivers that are involved in these, these situations. And so by qualitative, I am looking at the actual perspectives of the Black caregivers during this developmental appointment when they're going to get this assessment done, like what the parents are actually reporting, not how many times that they're reporting a certain thing necessarily, but like, what are they saying? And why do they think that this is happening? So to add to like, okay, maybe this is, may help us in creating more culturally responsive assessments or helping with intervention to understand, to dig a little bit deeper. So I, I see qualitative work. It can stand alone and be very important on its own. Like my, my study is an, it's not a, what we call a mixed method where it's qualitative and quantitative. It's more qualitative where I'm really trying to understand what parents are saying. But then we can also use this in conjunction with some of those quantitative numbers to kind of support 
why we need change or why there are differences or why there are things maybe a little bit different than what the numbers are showing. They say that numbers don't lie, but they do. They can lie because you might not be able to see the bigger picture. And so um, for me, understanding that qualitative descriptive part gives a, a bigger, a better understanding of the bigger picture. What Can you share some of your findings? What are you finding? Like, what are they reporting? See, now I'm not going to have anything to say on research day. No, <laughs> think of this as, think of this as like oh, yeah, practice for the no. defense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, so I kind of alluded to before, a lot of parents are definitely reporting that they want their child verbal communication. They are worried about their child's verbal communication. And so they may say he started talking and then he stopped or he just, he just won't talk or they, he, she just won't talk. And then, but they're, they're also talking about the memory, like, oh, he's got a good memory. He remembers real good. You know, he's, or they're great at problem solving, things like that. So those are a few of the, the things that have been reported. What about their feelings? Does it go into like, yeah. so like I'm pulling my PFD hat, right? So like within the pediatric feeding disorder diagnosis, there's four domains. There's medical, feeding, skill, nutrition, and the fourth one is psychosocial. But that psychosocial piece is not unique just to the child, the patient. It also encompasses the caregiver and their psychosocial piece, which has me always wondering what's the psychosocial piece going on for the caregiver for like all these other etiologies that we encounter. So like, yeah. Absolutely. And that's where that that second part. So my first question is really like, what are they reporting? And then my second question is like, what factors and experiences are these Black caregivers attributing to their child's characteristics? Why do they feel that their child is doing, having these um, characteristics? And it's been really interesting. One of the things uh, is that ethnicity, you know, they're, they'll say, you know, my family's from Nigeria. And so that's just a a cultural thing. That's just how it is. Or they may have like some self-blame. They may feel I, there was one parent in the study and they said, and she said, you know, they said it was my fault. And then the clinician said, well, who's they? And and she said, the therapist. And so, you know, if the therapist is blaming the parent, how are they in turn, like when they're going into the, when the therapist, their EI therapist has already blamed them for their child's um, differences. When they go into this assessment, how are they going to already feel? They already feel defeated. They may already feel defeated. And so thinking about those things. And, and then the other thing is this study was actually done pre-COVID. And so, but it was interesting to hear how many uh, uh, parents attributed to this limited exposure. And this can kind of also tie in with that, the self-blame. And they say, well, you know, my, she, we keep everything from them. We keep everything from her. And so we can't, that's why she's not able to do so-and-so, or that's why she acts in a certain way, because we keep everything from her. Uh, We don't allow her to go out so much. She doesn't really have opportunities. And it's like, okay, you know, that's interesting. What's that about? You know, I think that a few of those examples, uh, it's one thing, at least for our field is good, is that several of the parents also attributed a lot of their behaviors to therapy and the benefits of therapy. And this is an early intervention. The study is based on early intervention age children. So we are seeing that the parents are acknowledging that, yes, early intervention has really been beneficial uh, for my child that is possibly autistic. And then the other thing that uh, factor is that a lot of parents, they know other differences as well. They'll say, well, they'll say ADHD or they may mention apraxia, anxiety, things like that they'll attribute. And so it's very interesting here. But again, that may also be because of marketing and what has been marketed as well. When we think about what we're told autism looks like, 
how the, the pictures of that we see of autistic children, we see usually white little boys. Mm-hmm. There was a study done by Kaiser and women had train. black caregivers. Exactly. Why playing the train in the corner, playing with the blocks in the corner. It's like there was a, a study done by Kaiser and one of the parents, it was about black caregiver perspectives as well after their child has been diagnosed. And they said, oh, well, I thought that autism was for quirky white boys. I didn't know. And like, <laughs> was that too far? Like, how? how and, you know, you can't say like, oh, well, no, yeah, it's not a stretch. You know, you think about what Sheldon Cooper and the good doctor and all of these yes. things that we have, yes. you know, it's so interesting that they, um, so many other different types of disabilities have been raised and, but autism sometimes is overlooked. And so th- those are a few of the things that I'm seeing. But again, that's why it's so important to do the qualitative descriptive work to see what they're reporting. And what's so different about the study that I'm doing is that, Oftentimes we get what parents are reflecting on afterwards. You know, they'll say, well, this is my experience afterwards, which is great as well. But I'm really looking, I'm analyzing exactly what was said during, because sometimes they may not even realize, you know, what they're attributing or what they're saying. And so just trying to really understand those, have that insight coming from directly what is being said is, I I think, really important. Yes. It... It makes me think about the bigger picture of health literacy and access, right? Like that, that is, absolutely. I mean, there's so much marketing specifically towards white women to watch out for autism, signs of autism, but it's embedded in places and stages that would be more regularly frequented by white women that are upper middle class, right? Absolutely. And are we, how do we bridge that, right? Right. Like how do we, I don't know. I don't have the answer for this. I mean, I'm just asking the question, but it feels like there's got to be ways to like, I don't know, reach out. I think it's about making noise, like making noise, making it like saying we are here. They are here. If you are not, it's not just about the black community. It is about the diversity of the communities. It is about the girls. It is about the girls from diverse communities that are here and that are autistic and that are, and it's fine. It's okay. This is not, this is not something that needs to be hidden. Especially, you know, in, and I speak for, as and when I reflect on some of the things that I've heard within the Black community, at least, you know, a lot of the, it has to be hidden. And it's like, no, we don't need to hide anymore. Mm-hmm. We need more self-advocates. We need more self-advocates as clinicians. We need more input from diverse perspectives. Um, I really, really think that that is going to help. And we can't, we have to recognize that there is something broken. And so we do need to fix it. And even though that we see these prevalence, like I said, you see these prevalence rates, there's still work to be done. There is a lot of work to be done. And in a field that is 92% white, we have to do better. We need to do better. And we, I charge all of us, myself included, to do the work at shouting from the rooftops that we need to have change in terms of um, recognizing the variations and differences and the, the beauty that is within those variations and differences. I love you. <laughs> like, I am so in awe of you. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is. Utterly amazing. Okay. So I need to make a couple mental notes and introduce you to some people. Please, please do. 
Yes. And we will sidebar that. But thank you for your work. Thank please, please extend my heartfelt gratitude to everyone that's involved with this lab. This is phenomenal. And and the fact that y'all have this research project going on, that's going to change so many lives because the people that go through the training to then go out and expedite assessments are going to expedite care and word of mouth will spread. And this will, I don't want to say grow like a wildfire when Chicago and Stanton are a little smoked out right now, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) But like, that's not called age well. (laughs) That's not called age well at all. (laughs) But like, I used to say laughter was infectious and now post COVID I'm like, Ooh, that's not good. (laughs) But Okay. My, one of my favorite things of the podcast at the end is to always ask if you got any love money or if somebody's got some time, how and where can they tithe? What can we do in your honor? Help me spread joy. Please, please give your time, resources, whatever you have to the Early Intervention Research Group at Northwestern University. You can find us at ei.northwestern.edu. We're on Instagram at ei.northwestern. We would love to have you. Um, And please, 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 we would love to have your support. And if you're on the ticky-tacky, then you can also just follow me personally at the speech scientist as well. And uh, But we greatly appreciate you. Amazing. EI.Northwestern on Instagram. And are, we, are you yes. on Instagram as well? I'm not so much on Instagram. I'm focusing right now on TikTok because it's a lot easier for me to manage in my <laughs> personal life. <laughs> But uh, you can contact me. You can. I'm feel free to email me at Lillian. Uh, sorry, at L Thompson SLP at gmail.com. L Thompson SLP at gmail.com. And I'd love to connect with you all. You said ticky tacky. My dad's trying to convince me to get on this, the family snap of the chat. And I was like, no, I know what happens on the family snap of the chat. My brother's who are obsessed with poo and they are too old to know better will randomly send like an, a message and they're like, just wait, I broke the record. No, I have a good thing I need to. Okay. Also shout out to my all time favorite Instagram account. It's called round boys. There might be a dot in there. Oh, and oh my God. It's spherical shaped animals moving. <laughs> and they just, oh my God. Just spherical shaped animals, but they like wobble and they wiggle, and it brings me a lot of joy. I might need that during the PhD process. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, do the Google for Round Boys on the Instagram. I don't know. Maybe don't Google Round Boys because terrible things could pop up there. But the spherical animals, man, that's where it's at. So yes, Noted. yes. Okay. Well, Lillian, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And I look forward to talking with you soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's course. To complete the course, you must log into your account and complete the quiz and the survey. If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete mailing address in your account profile prior to course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to reflect on your ASHA transcript. 
Please note that if this information is missing, we cannot submit to ASHA on your behalf. Thanks again for joining us. We hope to see you next time. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Bye.